You are listening to the Safety of Work podcast, episode 92. How do different career paths affect the roles and training needs of safety practitioners? Let's get started. My name's Drew Ray, I'm here with David Proven, and we're from the Safety Science Innovation Lab at Griffith University in Australia. Welcome to the Safety of Work podcast. In each episode, we ask an important question in relation to the safety of work or the work of safety, and we have a look at the evidence surrounding that question. Today, we're going to have a talk about one of the papers that David dug up when he was doing the literature review for his own PhD. This is a paper that talks generally about the sort of roles and work and background of safety professionals. David, before we get jump into the detail of the paper, is there anything sort of by way of background that you'd like to talk about? Yeah, Drew, I found this paper really interesting um, and we'll talk about the details of where it was done and, and, and when it was done, but it was a paper that covered some important questions that I had, which is about the background and the education of, of safety professionals. Uh, about the activities they perform and therefore what uh, training and capabilities they need to have. And it also introduced this, this idea about the professional distress experienced by you know, a reasonable proportion of safety professionals due to aspects of their role and support and involvement within the organisation. So I kind of hit some real highlights of, of um, what I know were, what, what I knew to be sort of important questions for the safety profession. Yeah, no, no, I understand that the sort of ideas of stress and frustration in the role are something that would have immediately attracted to you. I, I guess this paper resonates with me a bit, just because I've been thinking a lot recently about the usefulness of generalizations and labels and the way in which we try to sort of find other groups of people where we share just enough similar experiences that what works for us works for them and how that's sometimes really useful for sort of like forming communities and bringing people together. But also sometimes it can lead to a sort of assuming that our experiences are universal and talking over the top of people who've got really quite different backgrounds and experiences, even though superficially we've got the same labels. I, I worry that that is something that we do a lot in safety, that we sort of prescribe these broad general solutions and say, this is what everyone should do thinking that everyone is like me. Everyone has the same background, same education, same training, same problems that they're facing. Yeah, Drew, and even about those things, just um, the labels like uh, a, a tertiary qualified safety professional as opposed to, um, you know, a safety professional with no formal qualifications. And, and these labels are really big and we say them as if there's a right and a wrong answer without a lot of critical thought and exploration of uh, all of the different all the different alternatives and, and advantages and disadvantages of all of those different paradoxes, if you like. Um, so should we jump into the paper? Yeah, let's let's talk about the paper. And I guess we've got an interesting label to talk with to start with because the, the paper is called Reflexive Approach to the Activity of Preventionists and Their Training Needs, Results of a French Study. Now, preventionist was not a term that I'd actually heard before. How about you? Uh, not until I started doing my literature review and found that um, that organisations that had safety tied up a lot in allied health activities, occupational physicians and, and 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 rehabilitation and so on, actually used the term preventionist to describe what we would mostly call a safety professional involved in the risk reduction and prevention of the health and safety impacts of work as opposed to the diagnosis, support and recovery from so it's like a before after label the preventionist is on the sort of left hand side of the bow tie and ties in a lot to the sort of the french ergonomics kind of tradition as well around human factors and ergonomics so and it might there might be a nice translation for it this is just the way it translates into into english preventionists but i did i did come across it quite a lot in some of the european uh literature so the authors of this paper and as always i apologize to the authors for my lack of skill in pronouncing names. We have Elaine Garrigo, professor at the University of Bordeaux, and we have Guy Paisel-Cottonaz. I can't actually get a lot of information on these authors, mainly because they seem to publish mainly in French, so that's nothing to do with their lack of productivity, it's my lack of ability to read their body of work. 
but as far as I can tell from the translated titles, they seem to mainly publish about the sort of occupational exposure end of safety, what we might call occupational hygiene, your exposure to pesticides, harms of pesticides, nanoparticles. But this particular work is more general than that. It's not just talking about occupational hygiene. Uh, it was published in a good journal, Safety Science, published in 2008. Yeah, so Drew, I think this study was quite a coordinated effort across across the French industry. They involved lots of different professional associations and got access to lots, not, not a huge number of participants of the survey, sort of 372, I think, respondents. And it was a survey. We'll talk about the method shortly. Um, but lots of different industries, lots of different companies sort of participating. So it was quite a coordinated effort. So I assume there was some funding coming from somewhere, which is why this uh, these particular authors jump, um, you, know, you know, took forward this project. And I think in this case, I might just read part of the abstract straight out because I think it summarises the paper pretty well. And certainly the parts of the paper that why it would be interesting, I think, to you, David. So it says, what are the training needs of company preventionists? An apparently straightforward question, but one that will very quickly run into a number of difficulties. The first involves the extreme variability of situations and functions concealed behind the term preventionist, and which stretch way beyond the term's policy misnature. Moreover, analysis of the literature reveals that very few research papers have endeavoured to analyse the activities associated with prevention practices, especially those of preventionists. This is a fact, even though prevention-related issues and preventionist responsibilities are becoming increasingly important. I mean, that, that could almost be the manifesto that started off your PhD, David. We've got this one term that we, we don't really know what the breadth of activities is that goes on beneath it. And you're apart from the odd term preventionist, you could just say exactly the same thing about safety professionals. Yeah, absolutely right, Drew, and it did get me me interested in this paper particularly, and 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 as we get down into some of the detail, there's, there's there's quite a lot in this paper that I think gives a lot of opportunity for the safety profession to reflect on its direction. And so this was this actually did shape my thinking for the main ethnographic research component of my PhD, which was about how well do we really understand what safety professionals do in their role. There was a lot happening at the time. So there was a really big study that had been done, sort of supported by INSPO, 12 countries, Hale and Gulderman and others um, were involved. Um, there were tens of thousands of safety professionals. And, and that's what kind of landed that said, well, safety professionals do training, risk assessments, write policies and procedures, investigate incidents and do audits. Those like these five or six things, 70 or 80% of safety professionals all around the world get involved in these activities. Therefore, these are the training needs. And there was a global capability framework published in 2015. And, and I felt like along with these authors that all of this was being done without a really good understanding of the role itself or an oversimplified and standardized view on what the role was. Yeah. So just because people say this is what they spend their time doing doesn't even mean that it is what they spend their time doing, let alone that there's not like a host of different things concealed under apparently similar labels. Or you don't know what aspect of that work, you know, risk, is it understanding what a risk assessment is? Is it actually getting the organisation to provide support for a risk management system? Is it actually like you don't actually know what their needs are? And I think that's what these authors did really well is about training needs is going, unless we understand this intimately, we actually don't know how to train safety professionals or preventionists to be able to do their job well. So might make a quick comment on the method of the paper. So this was a questionnaire. So a survey, um, it covered seven different topics. It covered the academic and professional background of the respondents, what sorts of activities they were engaged in, how they interacted and cooperated with other health and safety specialists, what their own viewpoints were about their activities, particularly with related to what their needs were, a bit about their own company and workplace and some demographics, what sorts of health, safety and environment policies their companies had and what their company's performance was in managing health, safety and environment. So surveys have got good things and bad things about it. Um, I, I think the authors actually sum it up pretty well. They say, you know, as a tool, the questionnaire is limited because it only allows access to what the person says about what they do or feel. So we can only sort of like work at what they tell us. Um, it doesn't mean that that's actually a true reflection of what they actually do. 
So you can't really use a survey as a substitute for studying um, directly, like through ergonomics, what someone does. And a survey shouldn't stop you going deeper and trying to understand not just what they say about what they do, but actually what they do, particularly at the very least going down to the level of interviews or focus groups. But for this sort of question, a survey is basically a good first start. Yeah, so Drew, um, and again, I, I sort of feel like my research went on and went on and did a little bit of what these authors were calling for with individual with um, individual interviews and direct observations around not just what people did, but but how they did it and why they did it um, in their roles. And Drew, it must have warmed your heart a little bit to see um, a paper that was so open and honest and transparent about the method and the limitations and um, and what it meant. Yeah, lots of research papers, when you pick them up, they've got token statements like this that just say, you know, this is why we did a survey, this is why surveys are good, these are the weaknesses of surveys. But then they totally ignore that when they get into their actual analysis and results and they make claims that their method can't support. What I actually like about this paper is not so much just that statement, but the way they carry it through and they are careful to sort of limit their claims to be most tentative when surveys are at their weakest and most strong when they know that actually this is something that a survey can tell us pretty clearly. So like I mentioned before, we had 300, well not we, um, the authors had 372 respondents from safety professionals, or we'll use safety professionals and preventionists a bit interchangeably for our listeners, from within public and private companies. So we're not talking regulators or unions or representatives or something. These were formal roles dedicated either full-time or part-time with formal responsibilities inside public and private companies, and it coming from manufacturing, from utilities, from agriculture, railway, nuclear, other communications, a whole raft of different industries. They sort of categorized across a dozen or so different different industry sectors. So, you know, not a huge number of people, but I think, Drew, you know, 372 people, diverse representation of industries. It's probably a sample that's worth looking at. Yeah, I think it's fair to say that it's reasonably heterogeneous in that they cover a lot of different things but I don't think it's truly broad because there are hints from their data that there are clumps like they've obviously somehow collected a whole clump of people who work for just one or two railway companies have responded to the survey and so you wouldn't want to claim that any of the statistics coming out of this are representative it's not broad enough to claim that you know when they say 60% that that actually means 60% of the population but it does mean that when they say like this, all of our respondents said this, or most of our respondents said this, that you can accept that it's a fairly broad, broadly true view. Yeah, one sampling bias was um, distributed through professional associations. And, and I guess then you're only going to get at the population that are affiliated with those professional associations and, and so on. So the distribution method of the survey can sort of introduce quite a bit of sampling bias. And again, may not be generalizable to the population, but... Yeah, although weirdly, you'd think if that was the case that they wouldn't be picking up people who worked for really small companies or people without much education. And in fact, they do seem to have got that. So I think their choice of organisations was actually broad enough. You know, it's not like, you know, I suspect if, for example, in Australia, we just polled AIHS members, that it would very heavily skew to the more educated, larger companies and consultancies, whereas they don't seem to have that sort of extreme skew that you'd get from just one professional organisation. Yeah, great. So Drew, let's talk about some of the results. Let's get let's get sort of stuck into these results. Get us started. Okay, so very first one is that most of their respondents, sort of up towards 90%, were not originally health and safety specialists. And I think, David, you're one of the rare exceptions, aren't you, that you've been doing it pretty much your entire career? Yeah, no, I'm I'm a minority of, of left high school, did a did a degree that included a safety major and then got a graduate position as a as a safety officer for my first job and I know a couple of other people in my network who had similar um, career paths when there were some dedicated undergraduate degrees in and around the 19 mid 1990s but that's probably reflective I think of my experience one in 10 people have probably done safety their whole career and nine out of 10 people did something else before they ended up in safety yep so they pull out some of the sort of like general paths that people have come from other backgrounds like production or maintenance departments or they've come from administration or from quality uh, or environment um, and then there's 59 so a whole heap just didn't come from any of those they just spread from all over the place and when they came into safety lots of well 
first weird thing they say is that the choice was free for only 46% of them. So as in, a lot of them almost got pushed into safety, um, or at least that's the sort of interpretation that the authors have put. And then moving into safety, very few of them got direct training immediately in occupational health and safety. So they might have brought with them knowledge and experience, but they didn't get trained in the conversion to become OHS professionals. Yeah, so I guess this was really interesting. And I guess at the time, it's 2008. So it's quite old now. Probably the research was gathered 15 years ago. But this idea that almost half of the people who were in health and safety professional roles, it wasn't their choice to become a health and safety professional. That's the way I interpreted it, Drew. So there was either a position in the organisation that they got, whether it's pushed or, or, or moved into or, or asked if they could take it on. Or, so so there, was not, there was not a deliberate choice for half of these people to become a health and safety professional. And only, like it's only less than 20% of people had actually done training prior to taking on their health and safety job. So, you know, 80% of people start day one in a health and safety job without any training, and then only another 20% actually convert that to a formal qualification. So within this sample, there was, you know, only 41% of the people who'd had formal training in health and safety, um, you know, for their role. So, I mean, their, their numbers, they may not be, be representative numbers now or what but I think that was it that was a stark realization for me Drew just as how how does a profession work like that like where only half the people want you know deliberately want to become part of that profession and you know maybe only 40 percent of people do any training for for what their profession is and the other thing that I think is really interesting sort of related to this is what sort of education background people had before they got into health and safety so this splits roughly into thirds, if I'm reading the numbers correctly. So the first group have basically high school education. Um, so my understanding is that in France and Germany, in high school, you sort of split into two paths, either technical or headed towards university. So these were people who in high school were on the technical path, finished high school, went into technical jobs. So they typically have no initial training in health and safety, um, and very few of them were offered training beyond that, sort of uh, 21 out of 94. They tend to be older people. Um, most of them aren't working at managerial level. So they've sort of moved straight from a trade into a health and safety job with very little support to do that, um, and are still executing their health and safety role fairly low down in the organization. The second group has got a post high school technical education, typically, you know, a two-year technical degree. These tend to be a bit younger. They're more likely to have got initial training in health and safety, so they may have actually, you know, done their technical training, come out of high school, done technical training in health and safety, and they're moving into more like supervisory, junior managerial type roles. So they're people who are most likely out of the whole group to actually have some sort of certificate in health and safety, and most likely to have chosen safety as their career. So you could sort of think of these as the your group of younger have decided actually to go directly into health and safety and have got um, accreditation accordingly. Um, and then your third group are your people who have like university education, but not in safety. So they're engineers, they're BSc graduates, uh, they've got a master's, but actually very few of them have got training directly in health and safety. Um, so these people are typically either engineers or they're um, company managers. Um, so they're doing safety at quite a high level within the organisation, but just like the people who um, had no university education, they have no safety training. So I thought those sort of three groups were interesting and somewhat mirror the way we have things in Australia at the moment. There's a fairly young, fairly educated workforce who has chosen safety, who've done degrees particularly in safety. We've got a slightly older, more managerial come out of other degrees, might or might not have gone back and got a qualification in safety. And then we've got people who sort of moved from the tools into safety uh, with limited support, um, maybe, you know, a short course or something like that. Yeah, so really, I mean, I mean they're not bad, they're bad categories. And it's good, good way of us carrying through some of these different populations um, into the rest of the results. Drew, do you want to just talk about the initial training needs or? Sure. This, this one's not as clear cut because mostly really what they're pointing out is although there are some sort of commonalities, some common themes when you ask people what training they want, 
their main point here is that you can't really understand what the training needs are until you start splitting the people up into different groups and asking what training needs does this group have. And we can see that just from the educational background. You know, the, the type of training that someone who was an engineer who has voluntarily moved into safety management, the type of training they need is going to be very different to someone who got pushed into a supervisor role coming straight off the tools. It's going to be very different from someone who got their original qualification in safety. They're all going to have different gaps in their sort of skills and knowledge that need to be filled, even if superficially those things have got the same labels. So we've got some basic labels like they require training in ergonomics, understanding human behaviour, compliance with regulation, the good old generic risk assessment, and negotiating with executives came up sort of as one of the sort of like my most commonly mentioned items. Yeah, I think, Drew, this was, there was a bit of a limitation in, I think, the design of this part of the survey. They asked, I think it was 20 or 21 questions, and people would select multiple training needs. You know, what do you see as your training needs in your role? And select one or, or 21 of the following. And then they reported those things that 20% of people ticked. So it was, they do say that, you know, it was a closed survey. Um, people didn't get to come up with their own training needs. They could only kind of select from a, from a predetermined list. So, you know, really relied on the quality of that list. And I think um, some, some, some better effort could have gone into that list of things. But the authors did conclude that there was a sort of a weighting towards the non-technical aspects of the role. So understanding human behaviour, negotiating with executives and some of the ergonomics, human factors, how do people think and how do they make decisions and things like that. So that was that was one conclusion that they drew from this, that, that the training may not be so much technical as it is non-technical or the training needs. So what the authors did after that, which I think is quite interesting, is they divided all of their respondents up into eight groups of people who were as similar to each other as they could. David, I think we're probably only going to talk about six of those groups because the last two groups, the main thing that characterised them is they didn't fill out much of the questionnaire. <laughs> so they were sort of like grab bag groups, whereas the first six are much clearer. And they, they describe the people as similar, not just because of their background, but because of the organisations they work for. And they sort of found this match between what sorts of organisations employ what sorts of people as safety professionals. It might be interesting for our readers to sort of to think about which of these six groups do you fit into and how well do you reckon that is a description of what you do? Yeah, exactly, Drew. And just to sort of go through, there's this prevention specialist role. So, you know, a specialist safety professional, there's a field safety professional, there's a, a management safety professional, there's what they call a proxy safety professional, um, and then two other roles around a, a coordinator or a preventionist basic coordinator role, and then this um, unstructured safety professional role. So, I mean, sometimes we talk a lot and INSPO talks about safety professional, safety practitioner. Sometimes we talk about field roles and office-based safe professional roles. This is just taking, I think, some of those normal sort of dichotomous distinctions to a, you know, a more broader set of categories. So I think it is something that will be interesting for people to think about if they are a safe professional, where do they fit? So should we talk, talk about each of those roles for a little bit? So, so, so the first one is the prevention specialist. So these are people who work in organisations that have um, they, they tend to be larger organisations that have got a structured health and safety policy and resources behind that policy. So I think the way we'd probably describe that in Australia is they've got a pretty clear safety management system. The preventionist working within that system is someone who is qualified in RHS. They've probably actually got a degree in safety and they've got a reasonably high status because safety has a reasonably high status. You know, the, the real sort of challenge for safety in this sort of organisation is negotiating safety alongside other organisational challenges and then working out how to specifically implement the safety management system in particular situations and contexts. Uh, this group also didn't tend to talk about a lot of training needs, mostly because they considered themselves to be already qualified in safety. So to the extent that they were asking for yeah, they weren't really asking for training. They were sort of saying that they needed you know, more support in negotiating with senior management, but they didn't really see that as a please send me off to a course type training need. Yeah. So the field preventionist, I think, is um, is comprising a sort of a weaker structuring of the safety policy within the organisation. So therefore, a, a maybe a lesser status of the safety professional 
role and safety being seen um, or, or managed more so at an operational level, um, much closer to where the, the risk is. So health and safety is not a criteria for general management, but it is absolutely a need for, for frontline management and operations management. So they're likely to have, they're more likely to have a background in the company's activity sector. So if they're in construction and they're a um, project safety professional for the construction industry, they're more likely to come out of roles within the construct operational frontline roles within the construction industry. And they, they tend to gradually acquire knowledge by doing continuous training courses. They might do a certificate in training and assessment. They might do a certificate in, in risk management. They might do an auditor's course. They might do an incident investigation course. So they tend to acquire their, sort of do continuous training courses on the way through. Drew, is there anything else you want to say about the field preventionists? roles. I just want to highlight that they claim, and I don't know how universally true this is, that these people tend to be more separated from their peers. So it seems like they're claiming that people who are in this position have less sort of power and influence within the organisation. They tend to get diverted towards doing activities like risk assessments that don't have a direct impact on operations. So even though they're more likely to have come directly from operations, they're now in their safety role have less influence than they had when they were operational personnel. So they've almost been sidelined by the transfer. Yeah, that's a good good thing to highlight. And I think listeners can reflect on their experience of, you know, field practitioner roles in operations. So Drew, do you want to talk about class class three then, the preventionist manager? Yep. Okay. So 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 these are headquarters based roles just grab a couple of quotes which I think indicate um, they talk about his executive engineer status and his organization chart positioning attached to the GM confer authority and legitimacy um, so if you ignore the gendered language there they're talking about someone who is very much in a senior management position having come out not from directly on the tools but from some sort of previous engineering or management type role maybe your typical sort of engineer project manager go up to senior safety manager um, or go up to a more senior management then go sideways into safety so they talk about someone who is able to sort of like look across the whole organization understand the different dimensions of safety the physical mental organizational social they don't say a lot about the educational background or educational needs here just that the person is sort of in a very sort of pressured position because of all of the compromises that they're trying to balance around them. Yeah, Drew. And so let's let's go into the the preventionist proxy. Um, I'm not sure I fully understood what they were talking about here, other than that management see the need, the organisation sees the need to do safety, but they haven't really developed any sort of formal policies and, and that, but have, but have now allocated a resource to to safety management within the context of not really Having a having a formal management system or process as such. Yeah, yeah. The, the way I interpreted this, and, and I, I also don't quite understand where that term proxy comes from. What they were trying to like signal with that term, but it seems like this is an organisation that if you did some sort of maturity assessment, you'd see it as chaotic. So these are safety people who are trying to exert order over the organisation. Maybe they've actually been like asked to implement a safety management system for the first time in the organization or something like that. Um, because they talk about, for example, directing often towards administrative rather than towards technical risks. So these are people who might have you know, even come out of a trade union uh, type role where they're sort of putting up these safety structures in contrast or in opposition to the organization's operational activities. David, I wonder if maybe our difficulty in understanding it is that Australia's become so de-unionised that we have less of a sense of what it's like in an organisation that has this sort of like very active union representation. Yeah, and I think some of the comments in here, Drew, about, um, you know, the employ the company undermining the, the role. And I think I, I could just see a safety professional inside an organisation that says, we want you to manage safety. That's why we've hired you as a safety professional. And there's no formal structures or processes in place to anchor anything off. And so all they're doing is starting to provide advice and suggestions about what to do. And everything's being hit with, 
kind of no awareness or understanding or, or or systems and process to anchor things off. So they just keep getting feeling like they're making they're making no ground at all. And so they look outside their organization for support in professional associations and, and things like that. In some of the quotes, it sounded like that was the experience that these people were having. Yeah, I, I thought they're constantly looking sort of outside their organization for support was interesting as compared to a couple of the other classes where clearly whatever support they were getting was very much at you know, the first class, they're getting their support from the authority and safety management system. Uh, the engineers and managers, they're getting their support from their own authority high up in the organization. Um, and the field people are getting their support through continuous professional development and just being sent constantly on courses to learn about safety. And then those people that we just spoke to about, um, the proxy preventionists are getting limited support at all. And this is probably not a bad way to think about it, Drew. We, we talked about that a bit during my research about where are people drawing their legitimacy and power from. So that's that's a nice connection. So we want to talk about the basic coordinators. Yeah, so this one is interesting. So this is someone who is in an organization that has some sort of safety establishment, but it's not an establishment that's geared towards directly intervening in work, in making work safer. It's geared towards providing coordination type activities, like for example, giving other people safety training. So this is someone who's spending their time uh, largely as a trainer, running inductions, running training, helping other people to know and understand about safety, um, possibly getting involved in some activities that can be fairly sort of like discreetly isolated, like accident investigations. So they might, might take on those sort of separate activities, but they don't have a really uh, clearly defined policy that lets them get involved in the frontline work and in any sort of authority to change how work happens. So if they look, if they like upskilling themselves, they're upskilling themselves in their skills as a trainer. Yes, true. I think, and and they put sort of the safe professionals intervening or getting involved in what they put in scare quotes as basic issues like accident analysis and, like you said, safety training courses. And this was really big and popular, maybe two decades ago, at least in Australia. Drew, where every single job ad for a safety professional will come out with a mandatory certificate for in workplace assessment and training or training and workplace assessment because it was such a core role of of the safety professional to do training, just competency-based training for workers, not to provide any advice or, or programs or something around safety, but to train workers in their safety competencies. And then the final category they've just called unstructured. Uh, which is not an, uh, sorry, should be clear, this is not like an unstructured category. This is a fairly unified category. The stuff that was like any other, they did separately. But the role itself is very unstructured. So these are people who are, uh, I guess the big thing, the big sort of like indicator here is just how little skill and qualifications these safety people have compared to really the size of the job that they're expected to do. So you could almost think of these as people who should be in an organization that, has, that is like big enough and complex enough to have a safety management system, only it doesn't. So they're trying to do all the parts of the job that would normally be sort of like heavily supported by a system and documents and procedures, but they're just being thrown in to do that job without any of that sort of support. Yeah, Drew, I mean, you've done a good job of describing it. And, and some interesting, I suppose, insights from the data is that, you know, 40% of these people are in organisations less than 200 people. So they, they just have a safety person because they have to have a safety person and, and has no real training and no idea about what the role is going to do. And, but also enterprises, Drew, like 30% of these people were in the, the largest of all companies at, a, at an enterprise kind of level, which meant that in very small or very large organisations, you seem to just drop so when you've only got one role and you're a very small organization, you seem to not necessarily know what to do with it. When you're a really large organization, you might have hundreds or thousands of safety professionals. There seems to be a portion of, of those people who are there because they're there and they don't have any training and they don't really know what, 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 what to do. So it's interesting to see it at both ends of those, that organizational spectrum. Yeah, and I thought it was quite interesting that these people are often in the org chart actually very close to the general manager. So they're people who, uh, you know, in the case of uh, the engine, the prevent, uh, preventionist manager, being close to the GM is just a sign of how much power and influence they have in the organization. In the unstructured, it's sort of a case of, well, we didn't know where else to put them. So they're 
just sitting dangling off the general manager on the org chart. But that's not really an indication that they've got a lot of activity and support. Yeah. So, Drew, if we've got six, um, we've got sort of six classes. Well, there's eight in the paper, but we've, we've sort of decided to talk about six of them of different types of roles based on organizations and, and approach to kind of training and, and safety management. Do you want to just talk? Let's talk about some discussion points. Do you want to start by talking about you know, the relationship between these different roles in industry? Okay. Just even before I get specifically into that one, I thought it'd be worth highlighting just how much these different categories are determined by the organization, not by the background or skill of the safety practitioner. So even though we might have people with certain levels of training tend to be in certain classes, it just sort of indicates just how much of the capability that a safety practitioner has depends on the capability that the organization is offering them and the support the organization is offering them. And that sort of then lets us come into this question of, okay, so then there then particular industries that give better or worse support. And they say that in general, there's a little bit of a trend or class. So you can sort of take a guess what sort of organization someone will be in based on the industry, but it's not a guarantee. So, you know, if you know that someone is, say, chemical engineering, then there's a good chance that the safety professionals are going to fall into uh, that second group, but not necessarily. So you, you can't sort of make assumptions. There are different types in, in the same industry, and even in industries you might think are mostly unstructured, you'll still find isolated examples of each of the other types. Yeah, and I guess it goes to say that the identity of the safety profession is maybe not strong enough to standardise across companies and industries so much yet, whereas other professions may be legal and accounting and, and other professions maybe have a stronger sense of, not a stronger sense of, um, but a stronger kind of consistency of professional identity and role archetypes more so than the safety profession. So the safety profession is still so heavily shaped by the organisation and the industry. That'd be sort of a hypothesis, Drew. Yeah, it, it also possibly partially speaks to this idea of organisations trying to sort of take their next step or their reform in safety by saying, okay, we want to bring in this sort of person as safety manager and they're going to fix up safety for us. But then what the person can actually do is so heavily dependent on what organisational structures already exist and what sort of people are already there in the safety group that they're working with. Yeah, and so, Drew, I want to circle back around if, if we're ready to move on a little bit just into one other part of the of the there's a statement in the in the abstract which really did jump out at me when I first picked up this paper and it says that a significant proportion of preventionists are in a position of great difficulty, even professional distress. Like that was a statement. It's even bolded a few of those words. Um, great difficulty, professional distress are bolded in an abstract. I haven't seen an abstract with bolded words before, but maybe that's why it jumped out at me a little bit. And I coupled with another paper that I saw that I read in um, Professional Safety, which is the American Society of Safety Professionals Journal, which was about, you know, like the significant proportion of safety professionals that hate their bosses. And like it was like, you know, one of the top five or top couple of professions for people who hate their bosses and managers or something. So those two data points kind of got me thinking about this idea of, you know, professional distress and frustration, and you don't have to go too far in the safe profession to find frustrated professionals. So, Drew, I wouldn't mind just talking about that, but wouldn't mind getting your general thoughts first around just that that hypothesis or claim. So I think the term professional distress is really interesting and gets at the heart of the dissatisfaction. So this, this isn't just generally people hate their jobs. This is that people are in distress in their jobs because they feel isolated. And that isolation can come in a few different forms. It can come in not feeling that they are recognised. But I think much more interesting, it's not that they don't feel recognised as individuals. They feel they don't feel they don't feel that like safety is recognised as a profession. And so they feel like they're part of a group of people who are not recognised, which might be okay if there was like some other place they could belong, you know, if they could still at least belong to that group of people outside the organisation. You know, sort of solidarity in being the person who's, you know, I'm hated in my organisation, but then I can come along to the meeting of safety professionals and we can all complain together. Except so many of them don't feel part of a network outside the organisation. So, you know, they're feeling 
their profession is looked down upon, but they don't feel like they belong to their profession either. And that's sort of like where the extreme distress comes in is where do you belong if you don't feel that you're valued either inside your organisation or part of a network of support outside it? Yeah, so Drew, I might just run through a couple of the statistics because it was a survey. We've got some numbers and um, and maybe people can, uh, listeners could reflect on, you know, how they how they might sort of think about some of these questions. And and so the, the head, at a headline level, they, they sort of concluded that about 16% of responses basically a preventionist is uh their practice is extremely poor so they appear totally deprived in terms of training and resources they don't receive any professional recognition within their organization and and kind of that idea of you know extremely poor professional practice in you know and, and that's sort of one in six approaching kind of one in one in six kind of people um responding to the survey and remember that this is self-report so this is people saying that I myself am not able to do my own job well. And so you can expect that the actual proportion of people who might even feel like that but don't feel like saying it or might be in that position but don't necessarily recognise it. Could it be it's gonna it's always gonna be higher, not smaller. Yeah, and so just some of the some of the I'm just trying to think about the bigger numbers, but but twenty five percent of people sort of indicated or responders indicated that they don't cooperate well with other health and safety stakeholders. So this might be between Different roles within the same organisation or other roles, which says sort of saying even as a as a health and you know one in four people as a health and safety community say there's not there's 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 not good cooperation between our profession within our organisation, and there was a sort of a lot of people who didn't feel like they belonged to any kind of working community. So sort of half of half of the people. Drew, this point you made about sort of forty five percent of people said they experienced this feeling of isolation within the organisation. Um, you mentioned sort of isolation as sort of a key part of professional distress earlier. That's Does that surprise you, kind of that one in two kind of number? Not at all. Uh, I've always used for this one the Christmas party test. So, you know, in an organisation, you know you belong to a group if you get invited to the Christmas party for that group. And I think you're, particularly your field safety professional is the person most likely to get forgotten to be invited to any Christmas parties. They don't get invited to the safety because they're out in the field forgotten by head office and they don't get invited to the local group because they're not seen as part of the local group, they're seen as part of the safety organisation. Well, I got to get invited to the Christmas parties, Drew, because I had to give the emergency response briefing at the start. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so you were the most valued, charming person at that Christmas party. They all just applauded and clapped when that part of it was over and they could get to the drinking. Exactly right, exactly right. So then, interestingly, so 83% of participants, so think think of that number, Indicate that they that they compromise with respect to what they think needs to happen for safety because of other sort of company. They say company logics, which is great to see the use of that word. But sort of only thirteen percent that said that they didn't have to compromise their their safety opinions and and recommendations for for the company. So that's interesting. Drew. I guess I guess lots of people um, would probably say that we have to compromise. I guess the question is just how 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 much we have to compromise and it says here that sort of nearly 40 percent of people said that these compromises shouldn't be justified yeah when i looked at that sort of first figure i'm thinking well yeah okay you want safety people who say that they compromise you want people to be flexible adjusting recognizing their other values but then that that 40 percent see those compromises as rarely or never justified so that's suddenly whoa okay so they're not talking here about just being flexible they're talking about my values I've been compromised and I don't like it. Yeah. So I think I think that's that's there's a lot there's there's um there's a lot to think about in there and reflect on again. It's it, it's one sample in, in one country um fifteen years ago. But so, these reflections are, are I think useful reflections as as we get to the practical exercises or the practical the practical takeaways um or exercises shortly. Drew anything else you wanna you wanna let me just talk about management. So I was really hoping you were going to touch on some of these very small numbers here about times when practitioners felt at their ease. Okay. Yeah. So this is, I actually did put this directly in the interview. So only 2.5% of respondents. So if we've got 372 people, we're talking about like eight people or seven or eight people out of 372 said that they felt at ease in their professional practice negotiating with management about safety. So Two and a half percent of people felt comfortable talking about safety to management or negotiating safety with management. That's that's a big parent-child kind of 
power imbalance inside organisations, I guess, that's driving some of that unease. Your thoughts, Drew? Yeah, I, I'm, I'm wondering a little bit about what exactly people interpret like at ease to be. But then I'm thinking, okay, so your job is spend time talking to management, spend time talking to other people in the organisation, spend time talking with people out in the field. And if only two, two and a half percent of them feel at ease talking to management, 0.7 feel at ease negotiating with HR, and 10% feel at ease negotiating with field operators. Okay, these people never feel comfortable in their jobs. You know, when, when do I feel comfortable when I'm sitting in the office not talking to anyone? For the rest of the time, I'm stressed. Yeah, and, and I mean, it said that sort of 44%. So, you know, again, we approach just around numbers, we approach half of these people are not invited to their relevant management committee. Okay, so this is good news because we know they're only at ease when they're sitting alone in their office. Only 40, 40% of them get invited to go out and talk to management. Yeah, so management committees, I guess, you know, site leadership teams or general business leadership teams and things like that. So, so again, you know, different, different, different countries at, at different points in time. But there's some numbers in here that kind of you get out of surveys that if you ask the questions well enough, and you know, there's a lot of subjectivity in here, but what does it mean to feel at ease is, is a different thing for, for different people. So, you know, there's, there's some interpretation here, but the good thing that I like about surveys, Drew, and what this paper particularly allowed me to do was to form some kind of questions and hypotheses and go and explore them through my own research, you know, particularly in relation to some of these specific issues that seemed kind of um, extreme. So is that a good time to move into the takeaways and as we do touch on how you looked at some of those issues yourself? Sure, let's do that. Um, I only I got a couple of points. Do you want me to start or do you want to start, Drew? I think you wrote these, so you go ahead and explain them. It's all right. I, there's a couple of words in each. You should be able to work them out. So I think the first one is just a recognition that that, that safety pro- professionals come from diverse backgrounds and have diverse training and education profiles, diverse experience profiles. And Drew, in one of the papers that we did during my PhD on the professional identity of safety professionals, we, we found that, you know, um, career path and experience was sort of the dominant factor in shaping the professional identity of of safety professionals and was also one of the most common causes for distinctions and categorizations and in-group, out-group uh, sort of fragments within safety organizations. So the the university trained, the non-university trained, the people who've worked in frontline roles, the people who haven't worked in frontline roles, just be aware that the profession is very, very diverse, that diversity is a source of strength and it needs to be kind of supported and it also needs to be integrated well together. Drew, any any sort of thoughts around that? I think we could make almost a separate takeaway there for those of us who have a vested interest in training and education, particularly when we're trying to standardise and say these are the things that a safety practitioner should know, these are the things that a safety practitioner should be able to do. I think it is important to recognise that it's not just a case of taking people with different backgrounds and then giving them what they're missing so they all end up the same again, because the actual roles that need to be filled by safety professionals are all quite different, and we need different sets of capability. So whenever we try to define a standardised set, we're always going to fall short just because it's going to describe this generic person that fits nowhere. Yeah, it's a good it's a good point, Drew, and, and that that takeaway there of being a, a really complex job. And I say this to to people that I that I talk with and, and and train all the time around that I think it's arguably, or at least in my opinion, the most complex job in the organization. You know, it needs to understand what's happening in the front line, what's happening in the boardroom, what's happening, you know, in, in HR, in IT, in project management, in engineering. It's one of the only roles that's not located on site that actually needs to know, you know, how things are done on site. And so it's it's a really complex job that requires sort of a really complex set of technical and non-technical skills. And those things are different, like you said, Drew, in different roles and different industries. So it is very hard to to say what the ideal capabilities and, and, and training needs of a safety professional are. But I think we're we're a long way off in many of the things that we do for the safety profession. And the, the fourth takeaway, and I think this is one directly for safety managers, is that the role clarity for safety practitioners in all of these different roles is very low, leading to really high uncertainty, job dissatisfaction, lack of support. And I think that means that we're not going to fix the situations that give rise to this very quickly at all. That's something that's a job for the profession that's going to last, that's a project lasting decades. But in the meantime, the people 
in these roles are going to need extra support just because of the problems that they're facing. So we just need to take that as a priority for people across the profession is the creation of networks outside of organisations and the creation of management opportunities within organisations that directly address that need to belong and have support as individuals. Um, that's maybe something we can take up as another topic for the podcast is highlighting some of the work that some really good groups are doing in this organization in this sort of area with the setting up of these different networks and what sorts of supports are working well not working so well yeah it is something that can be done even even having those open conversations with the organization the activity that i like safety professionals to to do is to think about what they think are the really important parts of their role that add the most value to the safety of work and then go and ask questions of their stakeholders of what they think are the most valuable parts of the role and then start to work towards alignment on that. And, and what, what I typically find is that many safety teams and safety professionals have never even had the discussion with their, their stakeholders and others in the organisation about what the most important activities are and what good kind of looks like. And so investing some time and effort, and you can do that relatively quickly in role clarity, role alignment will, will help safety professionals if if the situation is like this paper describes the situation is. And I think I've heard you say before, Dave, that that just directly improves job satisfaction as well, that getting that role clarity directly makes you feel that you're doing better in your job. Yeah, and confidence is really important and feedback is really important. So, Drew, I wonder if I can throw you the question then because I didn't really answer this one um, succinctly. So, to put you on the spot, if that's okay, um, the question that we asked this week is how do different career paths affect the roles and training needs of safety practitioners? So I don't think the paper directly answers that question. I, I think it almost turns into a yes-no question that we can just state with confidence that different career paths absolutely do affect the roles and training needs of safety professionals, but probably not so much as different organisations and the structures within them affect the roles and training needs of safety practitioners. Yeah, I think that's a great conclusion. So so therefore, that means that there's a lot you can do in your own organisation without the need for the whole profession to, to move and change. So Drew, that's it for this week. We hope you found this episode thought-provoking and ultimately useful in shaping the safety of work in your own organisation. Join us in the discussion on LinkedIn or send any comments, questions or ideas for future episodes to feedback at safetyofwork.com. 